If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we all just sang, would you indeed grant us grace in order to read and mark your holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. Father, indeed, would you open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Father, be pleased now through your word and by your spirit to reveal Christ to your gathered people. For we pray in his name. Amen. One of the most recent Congressional Medal of Honor winners was a Marine sergeant uh, from Kentucky. And I remember reading his citation. In fact, uh, through the years, after, uh, during the military and afterwards, I've always been fascinated by reading the citations for medals and awards. And if you've ever... Um, listened to or read a number of the Medal of Honor citations, there are a couple of common themes that emerge. In fact, it's almost like uh, there's a template out there, a, a Word document that you can just you know, put in the details. And, 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 and here are a couple of these common themes. The winner, the winner of this medal, the winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, defended his position and his men from wave after wave of attacks and assault from the enemy. The winner willingly, without regard to his own life, exposed himself to enemy fire in order to save his fellow soldiers. Well, my friends, what we have here in our text from Mark this morning is the third wave of an assault by the enemy. Remember, there was the time when the religious authorities tried intimidation. They said to Jesus, basically, who do you think you are? And then there was the time when the religious authorities tried, um, got together and collaborated to trap Jesus with a political question. And we saw that last week. And today we see others coming with a strategy to make Jesus appear foolish by asking him a theological question of which they already know the answer. All of these waves of attack and assault have one goal, to discredit and destroy the ministry of Jesus. And that's been going on really since Mark chapter 3. Here we are in Mark one of the Gospels where Jesus is revealed. The Old Testament uh, predicts Jesus. The book of Acts, uh, we see Jesus preached. And in the letters, we see him explained. In Revelation, we see Jesus expected, his return. But here in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus revealed. And it's foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Indeed, at the center of the Christian faith, is Jesus. He's the object of our faith. It's amazing that a book had to be written a few years ago called Christless Christianity. 
How can that be? And yet we know that in the first century and today, there is widespread confusion and ignorance over the person and work of Jesus. We're now in the second half of Mark. We've already seen the confession of faith by Peter of Jesus as the Christ. And then Jesus turn around and call Peter and others to a life of discipleship. Chapters 11 through 16 cover one week in the life of Jesus, his final week of earthly ministry in Jerusalem, and yet they take up nearly a third of Mark's gospel. These gospels, as a reminder, aren't biographies per se. They are gospels. They are um, put together with a purpose to get to the heart of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and they're all moving toward his death. Because all four Gospels can be understood as passion or suffering narratives with extended introductions. In other words, it's all prelude until Jesus gets into Jerusalem where he will suffer and die for his people. Last week in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12, we saw the trap of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then we saw the teaching of Jesus, and we saw three images in our text. We saw the image of Caesar on the coin, we saw the image of God in men and women, and we also saw the unspoken but image of God himself as Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see the title of the sermon. Let me reframe it now as a question. Have you ever been told by Jesus that you're wrong? What was the situation? How did you encounter Jesus? Now you may say, wait a minute, that's impossible. Well, no, my friends, we encounter Jesus when we come to his word. So have you ever been told by Jesus you're wrong? How did you respond? Well, we have something like that going on in our text. Join with me as I read Mark 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote that for For us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
You are quite wrong. The Sadducees approached Jesus addressing him, notice, as teacher and asking him a question. Now, it's important to remember that the job of a teacher is not only to present information, but also to teach, to declare right from wrong. Children, that's what your parents do. That's what your parents are called to do, to help you grow and teach you right from wrong. Our approach to the text this morning will be to first examine their question, the question of the Sadducees, to unpack his answer or better his rebuke, and then finally to consider the assurance that the reader then and the reader now is given. First, their question, and you see that in verses 18 through 23. Well, first, who's asking the question? It's the Sadducees. Who are they? Aristocratic, highly educated, priestly families of Israel. They are the wealthy nobles who control the temple and the Sanhedrin, that large religious council that rules Israel underneath the Roman occupation. And they have some beliefs that will be identified. They're moral, but yet they don't believe in the supernatural. There are no angels. There are no demons. And interestingly, when it comes to God's word, they say the first five are enough. The book of Moses is enough. The Pentateuch, the first five books of what we call our Old Testament, is enough. Interestingly, they also do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And in doing that, they deny as well the reality of the final resurrection, which according to Jew Jewish theology was to be the time of final judgment. Well, what is the question these Sadducees ask? Well, first of all, it's important to note right off the bat, it is a trick theological question. Earlier, the Pharisees apply a trick political question to Jesus, now it's going to be theology. We're not so much concerned about Caesar and Rome and paying taxes. We're concerned about God's word, Jesus. And they believe that in this hypothetical question, this riddle that they have come up with, that they have an airtight argument. It's probably the way that, um, that Aaron felt as he went against that guy in basketball. He was not going to be stopped only to find that the shot was blocked. Well, what we're going to see here is Jesus blocks the shot. Why do they ask this particular hypothetical question? Well, what they're doing is trying to dis demonstrate the absurdity of the resurrection by framing a question having to do with the Old Testament provision for uh, uh, what's called a leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25. And in Deuteronomy 25, you'll see a section of verses that, that are a part of God's mercy to his people, to his, 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 uh, the children of Israel. When a woman dies, a childless woman, uh, excuse me, when a, uh, a husband dies and leaves a woman childless, who's going to take care of her? This was a provision for God's mercy to be demonstrated through God's people. And so what they're saying is if God has given this law, then it is ridiculous to believe in the resurrection because, hey, we're following the law of Moses here when it comes to brothers marrying uh, their uh, dead brother's widow. 
And so they're thinking that they can disprove the resurrection and not only disprove it, but make anybody believes in it is, is it's just ridiculous. And so here, the Sadducees, in asking this question, presenting this hypothetical scenario, they're trying to get Jesus again on the horns of a dilemma to either deny the law of Moses or to deny the resurrection. So it seems like Jesus must now choose between denying what he had just said about the resurrection that we see in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12 or contradicting his previous stress on the marriage laws that we see in chapter 6 and 10. And either way, they believe Jesus will be in trouble with the crowd and they will be able to destroy his credibility, or so they think. Well, throughout Mark, we see people asking Jesus questions and Jesus providing answers. Here, we learn that asking Jesus a question can be dangerous, especially when the motive is not to learn from him, but rather to assault him. I mean, you all have experienced that, right? You've been on the receiving end of questions that aren't meant to really get information from you, but to really attack you. And sadly, I would imagine that all of us, including the one standing here, has asked questions not to get information, not to learn, but rather to put down, to humiliate. Well, how does Jesus answer this question? In a word, Jesus' answer to their question is, are you ready? You heard it already. You are wrong. Or if you would prefer two words, you are quite wrong. Now let's unpack his answer. Let's listen to his rebuke. How many times has Jesus told us already that he's going to suffer, die, be buried, and raised again? How many times? Three. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. You think it's important for for, for people to, to hear Jesus say that I am going to suffer, I'm going to die, I am going to be raised from the dead. And so this question is really an assault on the central message of Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. He doesn't simply answer, He rebukes them and takes apart the underlying assumptions and errors. He rebukes them of their attitude toward the Bible Toward God. Jesus declares that they are wrong, that they are quite wrong. And here's the reason that they are wrong they lack knowledge. They lack knowledge of two things. Behind this error is ignorance. What does Jesus say? Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? This is one reason rather than two. To truly know the scriptures, Jesus is saying, is to know the power of God. The power of God to raise the dead. They are ignorant of God's power because they are ignorant of the scriptures. And so Jesus has to do an on-the-spot Bible study. He expounds and he explains the scriptures. The reason, the first reason, he says marriage. Marriage in heaven. 
The law will not be broken, Jesus is saying, at the resurrection, since there will be no marriage at the resurrection. Now, we don't have time, nor is this the place to really talk about marriage. We can do that when we get to Ephesians 5 or other places. But what we need to remember is that earthly marriage is a picture and a pointer to a heavenly reality of Jesus and his people united in an unbroken forever communion of love and faithfulness. The scriptures here aren't going to tell us all we want to know about marriage. So Jesus just goes back and he reminds them that, uh, that, that death will end earthly marriage. And that's why you can look at the other laws about if, if a, a spouse dies, then what can happen? So he says that marriage, there will be no marriage like we see on earth in heaven. But he gives a second reason. The resurrection. He says, you are wrong You are wrong in the area in which you most believe you are strong. Now, this is striking because Jesus is going to go to the part of the Bible that they accept, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And he's going to prove and demonstrate from them that their belief that there is no resurrection of the dead is, is unsupportable. Have you ever noticed that sometimes where we think we are the strongest, we are the weakest? Jesus here is like going to Wall Street bankers and saying, you don't know finance. He's going to the fire department and saying, you don't know how to put out a fire. He's going to uh, fill in your occupation. He's going to men who pride themselves on the knowledge of the first five books of the Bible. And he says, you're wrong. He's saying here, God's covenant promise to save his people would not be of any significance if it were overcome and shattered by death. He goes back to the Pentateuch. He goes back to Exodus 3. He goes back to the time of the burning bush to remind them that God's covenant promise to save them, not just from Egypt, but forever, if, God, if there was no resurrection then God's covenant promise would be broken. Because he goes back and he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive to God. God is not the God of the dead, but rather he is the God of the living. Here, the uh, Sadducees are confronted with this massive denial of the resurrection and therefore the final judgment. Denying the resurrection means denying judgment. The fundamental mistake of human sinfulness and religion ever since the fall. Go back to Genesis 3. The fall of man into sin. The lives of the enemy. There is no judgment. There is no penalty. There is no price to pay. The resurrection and judgment cannot be separated. Their failure to believe in the future resurrection implicitly denies the power of God and the magnitude of the transformation He will effect. Jesus ends by saying not only they are wrong, but they are quite wrong. They are misled. They are deceived. They have gone astray. And so what we've seen 
So far is an insecure, excuse me, an insincere question followed by a stinging rebuke. But there's more in our text than just a question and an answer. What we also see is God's provision for our assurance. Our assurance. Well, where do we see that? Jesus goes back to Exodus 3, the time of the burning bush. And how many times did you all hear God say that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? Three times. God wants his people to remember this, to know this. This is a guarantee of God's covenant promises. I will be your God and you will be my people. I was just talking to someone the other day how important it is to see the Bible not just as 66 individual books, not just as two testaments, but one message of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's a guarantee in here of God's covenant promises. And because of that, there is the assurance of life after death. It's the logical outworking of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. If God is the God of the living and not the dead, then when you die, there is going to be some form of you coming back to life. So you see a guarantee of God's covenant promises. You see the assurance of life after death, but you you also hear the trustworthiness of Jesus' words. Some of you may be familiar with a passage that is read and maybe uh, preached at funerals. It's John 11. Remember, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then what does he say? Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? You see, my friends, Jesus, just as he was the image of God right in front of the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus is the resurrection standing right in front of the Sadducees. So let me ask you this question again. How do you respond when Jesus tells you that you're wrong? My friends, if Jesus, if God's word cannot tell you that you're wrong, then you're not in a real relationship with God. You're in a relationship with a God of your own making. A God who's a yes man. My friends, when God's word convicts us, confronts us, and by the grace of Jesus causes us to change, that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. So how did the Sadducees respond? Does anybody want to know how they responded to Jesus' rebuke? Well, turn with me, and we'll be there just briefly. Turn with me. To Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we read this in verses 1 and 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
But then turn over to Acts chapter 23. Paul is before the council. And read with me or look along with me in Acts 23 verses 6 through 8. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the, Pharise- for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. My friends, based on what we see in Acts 4 and Acts 23, the Sadducees responded after Jesus told them that they were wrong by just going on their merry way. Being part of the group that condemned Jesus, being part of the group that's going to continue to try to uh, snuff out this movement of people believing in Jesus and claiming that He rose from the dead. The Sadducees then appear to exemplify the inability to understand the Scriptures uh, properly, to, to listen and to hear as we saw in the parable of the soils, the parable of the seeds. They're not hearing, accepting, and bearing fruit. How about you? When Jesus tells you you're wrong, what's your response? Do you dig in your heels or do you fall on your face before him? Well, we've seen a question and answer and assurance. Let's end by reminding ourselves of two places in the scriptures where the gospel is directly addressed. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Remember what we heard from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And what does he go on to say? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is good news and the gospel is what? The power of God. The power of God for salvation. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Remember Jesus, you are wrong, for you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. May we at Grace and Peace be so very thankful for the rebuke of Jesus. And may we be men and women and boys and girls who increasingly long to know the Scriptures and the power of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus who if there was to be awarded a medal of honor, would get it. 
For, for us and for our salvation, he withstood wave after wave after wave of attack so that he could defend us and rescue us. And Father, we acknowledge that for Jesus, this medal of honor was awarded posthumously because he lost his life in saving us. But we thank you, Father, for the great covenant promises that you will be our God and that we will be your people. And we thank you, therefore, for the resurrection of Jesus. Because he was raised to new life, so also we, those of us who are united to Christ by faith. Oh Lord, may we eagerly receive the rebuke of Jesus. And may we increasingly know your word and the power of the gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He is our